It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Chris Palmer. Chris, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is a very exciting podcast, certainly for my end, uh, Chris, and, and hopefully for you as well. <laughs> Chris, you are a, a pioneer in my eyes. You are someone who I think is destined for much greater things, and I'm thinking potentially a Nobel Prize for the work that you're doing. Although in looking up and doing some research on you, I know that you went to uh, Bishop, is it Lewis High School? <laughs> you really dug on that one, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> well, I, I jumped on their Wikipedia page and looked up notable alumni, and you weren't on there. Oh, my goodness. That's what, awful. <laughs> what is going on in the world? When what is? Like, <laughs> the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and the Director uh, for the Department of Postgraduate and uh, continuing education at McLean Hospital uh, are yes. your two main main uh, areas of focus at the moment. What else? What else do we need to know about you? So, yeah, I've been an academic psychiatrist. So I work at McLean Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Um, my my day job, quote unquote, is uh, you know education. So for mental health professionals, largely. So I, I do conferences and seminars, workshops, all sorts of stuff. And I, I do that all year long. I've been doing that for over 20 years now. Um, I'm also a practicing psychiatrist. So I've been working with patients with treatment-resistant illness for 25 years. And, um, you know, I tend to see people who've already seen several other psychiatrists and have not been helped. I tend to see people who've been in and out of hospitals. Many of them have been in psychotherapy for years or decades and nothing's working for them. Um, a lot of them have already tried dozens of medications by the time they come to see me. And, uh, and then I'm called upon to try to figure out what am I gonna do for this person? How on earth can I be helpful? Um, and, and so to that end, you know, for over 15 years now, I've actually been using the ketogenic diet, um, in, uh, practice, uh, you know, it, it started largely just, you know, because I, I did a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet for myself, for my own metabolic health when I was in my twenties. And I noticed 
a whole range of improvements. Um, certainly I improved my metabolic health, which was my primary goal. But uh, surprisingly, I noticed a lot of other brain benefits. So I had better mood, I had more motivation, I had better restful sleep. Um, I was becoming kind of this happy, peppy person who just had a lot of energy all the time. And, uh, and I'd never been that person. I always thought, you know, that there are, there are people like that in the world and that's not me <laughs> and, and uh, I'll never be like them. Uh, so I was becoming that person and I couldn't help but wonder, gosh, these are really kind of striking effects on my mood and energy. And I wasn't clinically depressed at that point. Um, and, but I noticed a significant improvement and I'm, I started wondering, gosh, I have all these patients that have pretty much tried everything. They've tried dozens of medications. They've tried psychotherapy. Some of them have tried electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy. Nothing has worked for them. Maybe this diet could actually do something for them. It's doing something for my mood. Maybe it could do something for their mood. So about 15 years ago, I started using ketogenic diets in clinical practice. And Lo and behold, I found that for some people, it, they really worked, and uh, and they worked in dramatic ways. Um, at that point, I was primarily using it in people with treatment-resistant depression, um, because I had noticed kind of an antidepressant effect in myself. And then maybe five years ago, I uh, used it in a, a long-standing patient of mine who has schizoaffective disorder, which is kind of a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Wow. And I used it for him to help him lose weight. Um, he, he expressed a strong interest and desire to lose weight. Um, he needed to lose a lot of weight. He weighed 340 pounds. Um, and uh, so he needed to lose weight. Uh, and so I was happy to help him. I had no no belief, no reason to think that this would actually help his psychiatric symptom. I, I was simply trying to help him lose weight. And, but lo and behold, within, within a couple of months, it was not an overnight transformation, but within a couple of months, he transformed. Um, his, the symptoms of his illness improved dramatically. Um, so this is a man who was tortured by hallucinations and delusions every day of his life. He could barely leave home most days. Um, he couldn't hold a job. He couldn't do school. Um, at, at that point, he was living with his father. Um, he, uh, yeah, he couldn't do most things for himself he needed to be taken care of, which is not at all unusual. That's what people with schizophrenia, unfortunately, are like. Um, it, their illness is debilitating, painful, um, it tortures them. Um, and he was being transformed right before my eyes and, and coming back to life in ways that I had never seen with any medication trials, with any other interventions that we had tried. So again, this is somebody I knew well, because we'd already tried lots of the standard treatments. And his symptoms would wax and wane, which is typical for psychiatric patients. They, you know, some, sometimes they have good months and sometimes they have bad months. 
But even a good month for him was still hallucinations every day, delusions every day, um, tortured every day, but he just was a little less tortured. Um, and, uh, and this, you know, this, this diet transformed him um, into a person who was able to go out into the world. He was able to start taking classes. He was able to finish certificate programs. Um, he was able to perform an improv in front of live audiences, which prior to this would have been unheard of. Um, and, uh, and that really got me going. And, um, you know, I, I felt like I can't be quiet about this. This is really important. This is, this is like, this, this is miraculous in a way. It like, I've never seen this in somebody with this kind of a disorder. This never happens. Um, and, uh, and so, in the last five years, I've been using this diet on dozens and dozens of patients. I've been writing about this, uh, both in the medical literature, in the lay press. I've been speaking kind of literally all around the world. I got to go to South Korea. And, um, I, so I've, I've been speaking all over the place on this diet. And, and as a result of all of that, I have heard from people like you and many others from all over the world. Um, who have stumbled upon this for their own health and mental health. That, you know, a lot of people started the diet just to lose some weight or try to improve their blood pressure or whatever. And, and then they notice like a transformation in their brain function, essentially is the way I look at it. Their brain just started firing on all cylinders. They were becoming happy, peppy people. And it's, and it's kind it's of like, like an oh. REM song. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. So I'm uh, pursuing research and getting a lot more people interested, talking, talking with and consulting with researchers literally around the world um, to advance this science. Chris, th this is something that is incredibly incredibly close to my own heart and i know given the industry that you're in and the associations that you have with the you know you've got to be very clever i think about how you position this so you don't get yourself into trouble me on the other hand i'm not i'm not in any position to lose anything <laughs> so i from an N equals one and from observational stuff as well, I cannot recommend people doing this that aren't suffering from any psychiatric disorders. But just just to be clear with people, when you in, in the area of psychiatry, what are the main disorders that you're dealing with day to day? So for me, I have I deal with a wide range of psychiatric disorders. So day to day I see people with um chronic depression. Um, I see people with um, schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and bipolar disorder. I see people uh, with crippling OCD. I see people with uh, substance use disorders. Um, so that's alcoholism, drug, you know, addiction. Um, I see people who have autism spectrum disorders, eating disorders, have a wide variety of patients. 
And not all of them are on the ketogenic diet. That I'm not a one kind of trick pony. It's uh, I'm still a uh, general psychiatrist. I still use medications when I feel like those are a reasonable option or intervention, or when that's when the pa- or when that's what the patient really wants. Um, I still use psychotherapy. I think psychotherapy is really important. I think people need support. So, you know, this, this patient that I described is a perfect example of that. So when you're ill with a chronic illness for 20 years, you lose your life. You literally lose your life. You, you hardly have any friends. You don't know how to have a job. You don't know how to pay bills. You don't know how to take care of yourself in your own place. Um, and so you lose all of that structure. You lose d- the, the kind of discipline that most of us have to kind of have a routine, to get up in the morning, go, you know, even work when we don't feel that great, uh, work when things get frustrating, work when somebody yells at us and puts us down. Like we still have to keep doing our jobs. We still have to keep going about our lives. And when people are disabled and incapacitated by chronic mental illness, they lose a lot of those skills. And so even in cases where this diet can help their brain function profoundly better, they still need help. Uh, Like the diet's not going to teach them how to do all those things. So now they need help on rebuilding a life. Like, how are we going to rebuild a life for you? And, um, And that's not easy. When you're 30 years old, 40 years old, and you've been living in your parents' basement for 20 years, you haven't had a job, you haven't had, you've, you've never had a girlfriend, you you haven't, you don't really even have many friends that you hang out with. The the one or two friends that you do have have schizophrenia. Um, when you start to go out into the world and talk to people. They ask you those obvious questions. Who are you? Where do you live? What do you do for work? What, where do you hang out? Uh, where did you go to school? Well, how, and, and, and then the answers are humiliating, embarrassing, turn people off. Um, and so I, I wish I could say I have all the magic, easy answers, but reintegrating into society when you've been out of, commission for that long is a really difficult, painful process. Um, But uh, I would honestly much rather be doing that work than simply hearing about hallucinations and delusions, torturing a person on a daily basis. So would a stupid rhetorical question be, maybe we should look at the prevention side of things (laughs) as a matter of urgency? And and a, the, a question I have for you, Chris, loose numbers, if you don't have them exactly, what roughly is the percentage of patients that have improved any or some of their psychiatric illness of the ones that went on a ketogenic diet? So it, it's a great question. And, um, you know, my... I have a relatively small clinical practice and in, in terms of clinical practices um, because I'm doing all that other stuff. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting. It ends up being probably about 
similar to the statistics in the epilepsy world when they use this diet for epilepsy. It, it's probably about one third of patients will have a dramatic improvement in their symptoms that really looks like a cure or a remission of their illness. Um, another third of patients about will have significant improvement, but they still have symptoms. It's not a cure for them, um, but it, it's, a, it's a powerful treatment for them. Um, and it's better than what they had before the diet. Um, and then maybe another third of patients, unfortunately, don't seem to get any benefit from it. And we really don't know why. And same deal in epilepsy. They don't, they don't really fully understand. Um, why do some patients, you know, with the exact same type of epilepsy even, so the exact same kind of diagnosis, um, some people with epilepsy respond, you know, to this diet as though it's a miracle treatment and they're completely seizure-free. They get off all their meds and they never have another seizure the rest of their life. And yet other patients seem to do the diet diligently. They have, they have ketones in their bloodstream. So we know that they're doing it. Um, and yet they don't get better. And I can speculate for days on what might be happening biologically and why that might be. Um, but at this, at this point in time, even though I can speculate lots of different possible reasons, um, the real answer is nobody knows for sure. Like why do some people get so much better on this diet and some others don't? Well, I think it's very important not to play this down in any way, Chris, because if you, if you came to me and said, Laban, I can improve two-thirds of the mental health population on the planet in some way, shape, or form. That, to me, is a very, very powerful statement because of the associated financial implications of, you know, these non-contributing members of society. And I, when we were conversing via email, I referenced one particular uh, person whose daughter, who's 49, who's been suffering schizophrenia and bipolar since she was in her since since she was about 11 or 12 years of age you know there's been really little contribution to society there it, you know if you can get another if you can get two-thirds of that to improve like this world is looking like a really different place and and you know in your own journey through this chris like you turn into this peppy happy productive person which has no doubt led you down this path and and stumbled across this, like you know, a, a small number of people have, and the impact that that might have on the world. Just your experience might be profound enough to change the course of of the planet. And so, for me, that's an incredibly powerful statement. It is. Um, it, it, yeah, I, I certainly. Um... I certainly don't mean to minimize my excitement about this as a treatment, um, but I also want to be realistic and I want to be accurate in what I convey to people. And the reality is we don't have any treatment in the entire medical field that works for 100% of people. 
you can have an infection with a very clearly identified bacterium. And uh, sometimes that antibiotic doesn't work for you because the bacteria is resistant to it. Um, sometimes the antibiotic doesn't work to you for you because you're you have an allergic reaction to it and you can't take it. So um, even with really simple to understand illnesses, there there really aren't any treatments that I can think of <laughs> that work for one hundred percent of the people with any particular condition. So to to think that this diet is going to work for 100% of people with treatment-resistant illness who've tried everything else is kind of silly. So um, so I'm a big fan of setting the stage with accurate information. But to be honest with you, the thing that I'm even more excited about and passionate about is trying to understand well, why exactly would this diet work? Why would it work? And it it calls so many much bigger questions. Um, and, uh, and that gets into this field that I'm quite passionate about, which is the, the intersection of what we call metabolism or metabolic disorders and what we call mental illness. Can I, can I have a crack? Can sure. I have a guess? Absolutely. Because in the last month, I've been privileged. I had a, my very first Nobel Prize laureate on the show, Professor Barry Marshall from uh, Western Australia, the, the gentleman who swallowed the Helibacter pylori bacteria. And he was very interested when I spoke to him about my own mental health experience of adopting a carnivore diet. I then had another guest, a guy uh, who's a scientist, Ruben Meerman, who was a, a guy in Australia that did a lot of work around um, working out the science of weight loss. Where does the fat actually go? Uh, and it turns out most of it's through carbon dioxide in our breath. But he, he was also quite knowledgeable on understanding the ketone bodies and was talking about uh, some experiences that I had when I first switched over to a keto diet and started running. And I've spoken about this a few times on the podcast, but when I first started running, after dealing with some emotional baggage and letting go and forgiving, it was my mother at the time. At about the 12 or 13K mark, which is about seven or eight miles, I think, I would start to cry tears of joy. And I felt this emotional release. And he, he was able to potentially explain that it might have been as part of the, one of the ketone bodies the the beta hydroxybutyrate also creates like a gamma hydroxybutyrate ghb which is also known as fantasy or it's the date rape drug but our body creates it naturally he said and and it could have been creating this mildly euphoric response in conjunction with this dealing with the emotional release and then i was even speculating that maybe that the the trauma that I had stored in my body somewhere, whether it be in the fat cells, because I was losing the weight and burning it off, it was being released and and sort of disappearing into the ether. Now I know this sounds like woo-woo, but I was just curious to know what are your thoughts on that? No, so it's um it's great to hear you accurately observe what you experienced. So I have seen this a lot. Um, and I actually think 
I would reframe what you experienced as what we call hypomania. And hypomania is an experience that's kind of the opposite of depression. It's where people feel euphoric or they feel much, much more emotional. They are getting in touch with an entire range of emotions that they usually wouldn't be in touch with. Like most of us, when we go about our daily lives are kind of blunted. We, we, we don't want to be too high. We don't want to be too low. We just kind of want to be neutral. And, and there's a little bit of a range in that neutrality, but uh, that's the way most of us go about our lives. And, and that's probably protective and adaptive. We can't all be like really dramatic and be experiencing highs and lows all the time. But when people get hypomanic, they experience a much wider range of emotions and the emotions are much more intense. But people also will notice that they're getting by on less sleep. So somebody who normally gets eight hours of sleep can only get five or six hours of sleep and feel great. They wake up and they're like, I'm ready to go. This is awesome. They have more energy. They're more creative. They're getting, they're, the ideas are flowing. The ideas are like flowing in their brain. It's just like, oh my God, I can't keep up with all these great ideas I'm getting. Like there's so much to do. And I like, there's so little time. I need to like get going. This is, this is exciting. Um, and, uh, and they get kind of an increased sense of confidence a lot of times. They just feel not necessarily in a narcissistic evil way, it's, but it's just, I feel proud of myself. I feel better about myself. I, I'll, I'll go, I'll stand up in front of people and talk, even, even though I, I, I always got nervous about that before. No, I've, I've got something to say. I, if they laugh at me, I'll be okay. I'll, I'll deal with it. But it, you know, it, um, and that is the experience that we call hypomania. So that it's most commonly associated with what we call bipolar disorder. But if people get hypomania and they've never had clinical depression, um, it's actually not a diagnosis. Um, there's nothing to diagnose. It can be a perfectly normal state. And, and the most common time when people experience that is when they fall in love. Um, so when people fall in love, like deeply, like, oh my God, this is the person, this is the person that I really want. I, I don't feel so good about myself. I don't know if She's going to say yes. I don't know if she's going to, you know, and then when she does say yes, like that euphoria that you experience, like, oh, my God, I've got my soulmate. This is, oh, I'm complete now. This is awesome. Everything's so perfect. Um, and that can go on for days or weeks or even months. I mean, people can feel this kind of ridiculous emotional high. And and that is not pathological. There, there's nothing wrong with that. It's something we all hopefully maybe at least experience a little bit before we get our hearts crushed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's, it's a great feeling. It is not pathological, but so in doing the work that I've been doing over the last, you know, 15 years, I've found many patients who have become hypomanic when they are starting ketogenic diet Um. Or as you said, when they transiently increase their ketone levels is what I notice in particular. And so when you are running, you get to a certain point. And if, if you're on a carnivore diet or even just a low carbohydrate diet, 
early on, your ketone levels are going to be lower. As you keep running and running, you're, you're starting to burn through that fat more and more, and your ketone levels are going to be elevating. And for the majority of people that I've worked with, um, the, most of them will have this kind of critical threshold over which if they get their, if they, if their ketones rise rapidly, they can get this kind of euphoric feeling. Um, and uh, it's one of the things that I'm actually working on um, in, in terms of this relationship between what we call metabolism and what we call mental health. And I actually think that that, you know, I mentioned falling in love. So that is adaptive. That is just part of our biology. We, most of us experience it. Not 100% don't, but most people have that capacity to fall deeply, madly in love and get euphoric over it. Um, I was just going to say, sorry to cut you off there, Chris, the timeline of when this was happening, it's so interesting that you say this. Uh, it really started in May 2018 when I had that major emotional breakthrough. It's when I started running and I went from running five kilometers, was the longest I'd ever run, to running a marathon in three weeks, which I completed in 3.56. And then I ran like a 50K five weeks later. And then I ran my 100K in September of that year. And the week that I, the Saturday before, that I ran the 100K, three days earlier, I met my now fiance in the streets of Melbourne. And people listening <laughs> to the podcast are sick of me talking about this. But the that falling in love experience combined with how good I was already feeling, like she is the woman that I knew that I wanted to meet my whole life but was beginning to think I wasn't going to meet her. And we are closer than we've ever been. And I'm so grateful to be able to talk to someone that kind of gets, because I, I haven't been able to find anything on this or, or even explain this to people because that they're not able to comprehend what's been going on. But you sound like you've got a pretty good grasp on it. Um, yeah, no, I'm getting ready to write a paper. I've, this has been on my back burner for a while. I've seen this a lot. And it's actually something that I warn all of my patients. So... So in patients who already have bipolar disorder, they are particularly vulnerable to this. And in some of them, it can actually be serious and dangerous, and it just needs to be appropriately managed. It doesn't mean that I stop the diet, but it, but I need to get them through it. And I, so I kind of prepare people for the possibility that they could become not hypomanic. The thing I'm worried about is them becoming manic, which is kind of, you know, probably even much more intense than what you and many other people experience. Um, and it, it, the what definition mean, of mania. What are the symptoms of, of, of mania or manic? The, so the symptoms are identical to hypomania. So it's, um, it's feeling euphoric or irritable or much more emotional. It's um, getting by on less sleep, having racy thoughts, um, feeling, uh, you know, instead of confident, sometimes feeling grandiose. Um, sometimes people can become, actually a lot of times with mania, people can become psychotic. Um, and so that, that, that confidence turns into delusions where people think that they're a prophet 
or they think that they're actually hearing God's voice and God is talking to them. Um, I've met many people who think that they are the, the next Messiah. Um, and uh, so this is bread and butter psychiatry. This is kind of what I do for a living. And uh, um, so those are the symptoms of mania. Clearly that is dangerous and that is um, a problem. And uh, again, so in people who've already experienced that before, Sometimes when they are first starting a ketogenic diet in that first month, you really have to be cautious and warn them of that risk. And both of you are kind of looking out for it. And, and then it can be managed safely by managing sleep, by sometimes I need to introduce medication or just for on a short-term basis to get them over that risk period. Um, but uh but yeah, no, so I, I've seen this a lot and, and it's interesting because I've seen it in people who only did the diet um, for weight. They only did the diet for weight loss. They, they didn't have a, a, a history of a mental illness. They didn't have depression. They didn't have bipolar disorder. They didn't have anything else. They were simply trying to lose weight. And I've seen a number of people who have become hypomanic and even manic. I mean, one guy that I know, he was, he had been kind of a, 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 a extremely competitive athlete. Um, and he got to the point where for months on end, he was only sleeping two hours a night. And he was getting up at like 3 a.m. and going for 10 to 20 mile runs. Um, just to get his day started. And uh, again, he felt great. It was, it was, it, it wasn't causing problems in his life. So by definition, he was hypomanic. But um, but he finally stopped the diet. He wasn't under my care, but he shared with me that he finally stopped the diet because he said, I, I couldn't keep going like that. I was just like, I I knew that I needed to sleep more than two hours a night. And uh he happened to actually be a mental health professional. And I pointed out to him, you know, you were hypomanic, right? And he's like, no, I wasn't. I don't have bipolar disorder. I'm like, no, you were hypomanic. <laughs> you were hypomanic. And the more we talked about it, the more he kindly finally realized, oh my God, you're right. I did. <laughs> I was I'm like, what the hell was happening? And I'm like, this is kind of what I'm working on. This is what I'm doing. How was he like, how was his, did he check his, like his blood work was he was everything functioning beautifully like what why would you stop that yeah he um i think he finally got to the point where he started feeling tired and exhausted um and uh and he couldn't sleep he he just he his body was revved up and his mind was racing um at night again with kind of good ideas and things to do and um, and he just got to a point where he wasn't able to sleep, and he finally decided, like, I really want to sleep, like yeah. six or eight hours or something. And uh, um, you know, if I was working with him, and I even offered this to him, I said, if you if you want to go back to the diet, um, because he noticed tremendous improvement in so many other ways, I said, if you want to go back to the diet, I can help you. Um, but uh, but again, it's you've got to find the right balance. And I think for a lot of people, part of that balance is finding a stable diet. So 
Um, so it's that rapid rise of ketones that I find can tend to trigger a hypomania. But um, so if somebody goes from like 0 0.5 uh, millimoles of beta hydroxybutyrate in their blood to 2.5 millimoles of beta hydroxybutyrate, that is going to be a risk period for a lot of people to, to start experiencing hypomania within days or a, a week or two. Um, but if they stay at 2.5 on a fairly consistent basis, their body will adapt and they won't remain hypomanic. Um, usually what I do is I just get people to sleep for even, even three or four days is usually enough. Um, and if they need to use, you know, a sleeping pill, they can do that. If they can figure out a way to get their body to sleep without sleeping pills, I'm all for it. So sometimes just calming themselves down, turning the lights off, no electronics, those kind of things um, can go a long way. Uh, but if you can get your body to sleep, the hypomania usually resolves pretty quickly. And, um, and then people are left with like this really good kind of feeling, like their, their brain is still firing on all cylinders. They still feel great, but it's not, it's not too high. This is this is really interesting because sleep is one of those things for me, Chris, that I am, when I talk about being blessed at the start of the show, like I sleep so beautifully and, I, and I've and i got a, um, a Garmin watch because I'm a runner and, and I've been wearing it uh, for the last month or two just to track my sleep and I'm getting between an hour and a half to three hours of REM sleep every night, but only sleeping for about six hours. And I, I don't need any more. And I've just, in the last three weeks, uh, started doing some manual labor work, like intense flooring, grinding, you know, like on my knees and like doing it and, and doing a, a carnivorous diet, like, you know, waiting, waiting until I'm hungry, maybe like 11 a.m. Because we start at 7.30 in the morning, you know, smashing a whole bunch of a beef short rib for lunch yesterday, much to the the delight of my my colleagues <laughs> and yeah. uh and then last night you know i went to sleep about 10 30 i was up a little bit later than what i would normally be um i did a, a seven kilometer run yesterday morning before work at four minute 30 pace fasted and uh <laughs> I'm, and i'm about 84 kilos at the moment and about five foot eight so my body fat on the scales is telling me about 15%, but I suspect I might be a bit leaner than that if I was to do an MRI or a DEXA, um, just just to give you some idea of my current sort of state, right? And uh, and that that mind racing that you talk about, I don't get that. I, I've probably been the most calm still when I when I choose to be, not all the time, most of the time. I have periods where I, I, you know, go into my man cave and I do my thing and and running is my meditation for me and I have these moments of clarity and so and, – and I really think that it has a lot to do with getting my gut health sorted because the, the autoimmune disease that I had was good. I was on a meprazole for 17 years, which, you know, inhibits calcium, magnesium and B12 absorption amongst other things. And and when I really went hardcore carnivore, 
my body fat percentage went from 14.4% at that time to 8.4 in three and a half weeks on some biometric scales at the local gym. And that was when I was flying. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised. Because that's the other trigger for a lot of people, which is consistent with their ketone levels going up. But when they when they lose a lot of body fat rapidly, especially when you get down to those last bits of body fat, the people who are becoming really ultra lean, um, uh, they can get that kind of racy high feeling. And it's it's interesting because we we actually have a tremendous amount of evidence for this already. And it, it, for better or worse, it comes from um, patients, people who have eating disorders. So people with anorexia will commonly report that um, they restrict food or they starve themselves or they exercise their, you know, in, a, in, in an excessive way. Um, because they feel better. They will commonly report that. I feel better when I'm thin. I f- and, and a lot of them will actually talk about feeling a high, that, that I feel high, I feel more confident, my mind is working better, everything is better. And when, when I force myself to eat or when I get shoved into some treatment program and they force me to eat and gain weight, I feel like shit. I get extremely depressed um, and even suicidally depressed. And a lot of people talk that up to, oh, you're just, you know, you've got your body image distortion and you're just upset that you're gaining weight and you think you're fat. But it's actually, it actually has profound effects on the way the brain functions. Um, And it's interesting because even though the ketogenic diet is a restrictive diet that I'm aware of at least one patient um, with anorexia nervosa who actually treated her anorexia by doing a ketogenic diet. And, um, and uh, so it's kind of like meeting their metabolic needs or this, this state that they've kind of become accustomed to, or some might say addicted to. Um, they they can do it in a healthier way where they can maintain normal body function. They're not allowing their body to starve to death. Um, they're feeding it enough protein and enough fat so that they can kind of function properly. And so their organs are all functioning properly. Um, but they still feel that kind of high. They They feel that effect of ketosis and feel a lot better. I've had a few other patients who had a history of anorexia nervosa who've done the diet, who likewise did really well on the diet. But I will say for full disclosure, I had one patient who had a history of anorexia who, when I tried the diet with her, her eating disorder like went through the roof and it got way out of control. And she was like binging and starving herself and then binging, binging on keto foods, but like 10,000 calories of keto, you know, and she just couldn't get control of it. I can help you. I can help you with that. Yeah. Because the next point I was going to make, and sorry to cut you off again, but just while it's fresh in my mind. So during the course of this, 
this journey I've been on for, for over two and a half years now, uh, Chris, I've, I during the lockdown period especially, I really struggled with sugar. And it got to the point relatively recently within the last three months where I even started attending some Overeaters Anonymous groups online to try and figure out what the fuck was going on, right? And and that was the first time that I'd actually saw any formal uh, counselling, right? And, and I jumped in a couple of these groups and I realised that there was people there that had been there for 10, 12, 14 years that were attending three, four, five meetings a week to try and stay on top. And I thought, fuck this. I, I've been able to conquer all these other demons, right? Surely I can knock this on the head. And I finally did it with the assistance of um, Alan Carr's book, this The Easy Way Stop Smoking Guy. And uh, and just bear with me one second, Chris. I'm just going to – this light's giving me some – I'm just going to pause it. If it happens again, I'll um, – I'm just waving to my editor. Um, if it happens again, I'll uh, – I'll sort something else. So I do apologize. Um, so, so I attended these groups and and I was like, there's there's a better way. There's a better way. And so with the with the assistance of this book, Alan Carr, uh, Good Sugar, Bad Sugar, it's called. Um, it's a neuro linguistic programming book. I, I was able to knock it on the head, but it, it came down to uh, abstinence from carbohydrates. So I'm I'm best on a a, a technically a zero carb diet there will be a little bit of carbs from some cheese that i have occasionally i don't have a lot of dairy but it's predominantly you know beef and fish and chicken shellfish that kind of thing even uh i don't have a lot of butter and i've dialed back on the eggs recently because i can find them a bit hit and miss but just in regards to your um statement with the the uh the, the patient that you had that was suffering from binging like as soon as I removed all of the carbohydrate, it I lost the desire for carbohydrate, and the and the only time that I've recently cheated was I ran a hundred kilometer ultra marathon uh, three weekends ago, and I managed to do the first ninety one kilometers on less than two hundred grams of carbohydrate, just through cheese, milk, and some coconut water, and I had like beef short rib and <laughs> some other stuff. And I ran out of food, so I ended up eating some bananas and Cliff Bar. And the next day, I had a massive binge, right? But I've been able to just to just use what I've learned already and, and re reset. And then as soon as I do that, you know, the 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 body weight just drops again. So, just in terms of an idea, if you looked at like a zero carbohydrate protocol for that particular patient, maybe that might help. Yeah, no, it's it's a great it's a great point and well taken. It's um. So those are the kinds of questions and issues that I'm always asking myself is, um, you know, uh, you know, because this particular patient had been using a lot of keto sweetened foods. Um, so keto cupcakes and uh, baked goods and other things that were supposedly ketogenic. And in fact, she had high levels of ketones, but those foods may disrupt things for some people. And, um, 
And so not only is it about getting control over your behaviors and your cravings and your hunger, but I'm particularly interested in mechanisms of action as well. And so it's not clear at this point that ketones, you know, there are lots of reasons to believe that ketones are an important part of the equation of the ketogenic diet. Um, But it's not clear that it's only about ketones. It may very well be about the gut microbiome, for instance. And, um, And if you're eating highly processed ketogenic foods, Um, We really don't know what your gut microbes are doing with those highly processed foods. So even if you've still got ketones, if those gut microbiome, if those um, kind of gut bacteria are eating those foods and secreting hormones, neurotransmitters, and other things in response to those, those are, might be part of the problem. And there's a lot of evidence pointing to the gut microbiome and all of these different hormones, neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, all sorts of other, you know, other factors that these microbes secrete and get absorbed and go right up to our brain and affect our brain function. Um, so it's it, at this point, it's not clear. Like we don't, we don't know what, what are, what is the magic diet? Does everybody have to be carnivore? Can, can you do some carbohydrates? Can you do spinach and broccoli and asparagus? Um, like, like it, and, and maybe it's in fact different for different people. You know, you almost certainly have a different gut microbiome than I have. And we probably have a very different gut microbiome than somebody else. And, um, and so maybe some people need to give up plant foods altogether because the gut microbes in their gut are wreaking havoc um, when they eat plants and other people can do okay with plants. Um, We really just, you know, I think clinically you can find more than enough anecdotes to say that what I just said is true, that, you know, some people on plant-based diets do seem to be doing reasonably well, or even a keto diet that includes plant foods, some of them are doing great and feeling great and don't seem to have metabolic problems or mental problems and and they're feeling good, happy and peppy. And other people swear that they had to give up all plant-based foods in order to get to that state. And um and uh and then, you know, there's so many variations. And it feels as a as a clinician, let alone a researcher, it feels like we're so far away from being able to answer a lot of these questions. Like if I see somebody come into my office begging me for help, like, please just make it stop. Make my torture stop. I'll do any diet you tell me to do. It's hard for me to know right now, based on science or based on studies, it's hard for me to know what diet do I put this specifically, what diet do I put them on and what are the odds that it will get them better? Um, you know I what love, I would do? What? Uh, and this is, this is why I probably am not, why I'm not a psychiatrist. <laughs> 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 I'd tear my license away. I would throw them in a padded room with bone broth and starve the shit out of them. Well, not starving, but just leave them only with bone broth, um, with loads of electrolytes, like like you know the magnesium, potassium, sodium in the in the bone broth, and give them maybe some um, 
uh, some diazepam or something. Actually, no, just give them the bone broth and and leave them in there for a month. And and you would go through, you know, you talk about the keto flu and the adaptation symptoms. That way you can monitor them so that they can't self-harm. And Because that's the thing that the, one of the things that struck me about um, your major uh, area of not concern, but like things you need to, people need to be acutely aware of. People that are suffering from like schizophrenia and bipolar, serious manic depressive disorders, the transition symptoms can, like transitioning to keto can be, a really dangerous period for those patients and that's when they can do the most amount of harm yes exactly and um your idea actually um it's so it's one that i've implemented not in unfortunately there, there are no hospitals that will take patients and do that in the united states right now um but uh i have I have recommended complete water fasts with bone broth electrolytes other things um through some patients and it can have miraculous effects for some of them. Like within days, they can feel dramatically better. Um, the, the challenge is then what diet do we transition them to? Cause you can't starve them forever. Cause that's called starvation and then people die of that. And uh, so we don't want them to starve to death. You definitely lose and, your license. But interestingly that, I don't know if you know this, but the um, in Russia, they use, 30-day fasting as a treatment for serious mental illness. And they've been doing it since the 1940s. They still do it. They still do it to this day. So they do have hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, where patients will get admitted and they will get water fasted for up to 30 days. Unfortunately, so so the, the, the interesting part about that experiment. So there was an American psychiatrist in the 1970s who went over to Russia to study this. He was like, that can't be. There's no way in hell. Like they're just torturing these poor mentally ill patients. They're starving them to death. What the hell's going on there? And he went there to study it. And he came back like converted. He was like, oh my God, it's really helping them. Like, I don't know what the hell's going on, but it's really helping them. Like people with hardcore chronic schizophrenia would come in and within 30 days, they were dramatically improved. Um, Unfortunately, the Russians haven't caught on to the keto diet or carnivore diet or other types of longstanding diets that will continue to mimic the fasting state. So they know about fasting, but then they put them right back on bread and potatoes and other things. And sure enough, the symptoms come back. And um, and so it's not widely talked about anywhere because they're not really curing or putting into long-term remission any patients because they're not using the ketogenic diet. So um, I'm I would love to see the day when maybe we could do a controlled experiment, maybe start with a seven day fast, um, but uh, but put people in a safe environment, a hospital unit where trained professionals are looking out for their safety, no matter what, everybody's gonna be safe. And we fast them for seven days and then maybe transition them to a ketogenic diet, um, w- whether that includes plants or not, like whether it's carnivore keto or whether it's a different, like I'm open to lots of possibilities, but 
put them on some kind of fasting mimicking diet essentially is what I'm, I would call for and then see what happens. And, um, you know, we, right now there's no, no research interest in anything like that. That's so <laughs> radical and so crazy and you're just starving people. How dare you? <laughs> and, uh, today's, today's your lucky day, Chris, because that Nobel prize that I was talking about, it's a dead cert with us. It just so happens that that beautiful woman that I met in the streets of Melbourne is Russian and she can translate. So if you can get a meeting, we'll get Anna to come and translate and you can tell them all about the ketogenic diet, the carnivore diet. We'll combine the two and then that Nobel Prize, baby, that's yours. <laughs> that's awesome. Like, uh, not, not that I really think I would get the Nobel Prize for anything like that, but uh, if it could improve people's lives and reduce tremendous suffering in the hundreds of millions of people who are desperate for an answer, I would be all for it. Chris, this, I I mean, every person that interviews you always says the same thing. I could talk to you about this stuff for hours and, and I, I need you to go back to work to, to continue doing this amazing stuff. But before we wrap this up, can you tell us about Doris? So yeah, so Doris is a um, Doris is a woman who is not my patient. I've spoken with her and I've reviewed her medical records. She was a patient of um, a physician at Duke, Dr. Eric Westman, and Doris um, Doris suffered from chronic debilitating schizophrenia most of her life. She got diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 17, and uh, she suffered miserably. She had hallucinations and delusions every day. Um, She eventually, you know, she was always disabled by her illness. She ended up getting a court-appointed guardian. she had people come into her home to help her pay bills, to take care of her, you know, help her clean, everything like that, because she couldn't do any of those things on her own. She's also horribly, tragically depressed. She attempted suicide multiple times. Um, and at the age of 70, uh, um, so for most people with schizophrenia, that's kind of like the end of their life. Um, her, her doctor told her, that she really needed to lose weight. Um, And for whatever reason, she decided she would give it a try. So she ended up going to Dr. Westman's weight loss clinic at Duke um, that uses a ketogenic diet as a weight loss intervention. And lo and behold, she did the diet and got into ketosis. And within a couple of weeks, she spontaneously was reporting I'm not hearing those voices anymore. I I don't have those delusions anymore. I'm not severely depressed anymore. Wow, this, like what's happening? Um, Within six months, she got off all of her psychiatric medications and she remained symptom-free. She uh, was seemingly in full remission from uh, her schizophrenia. I can't use the word cure because she was still doing the treatment. She was still on a ketogenic diet. 
And a cure means that you can stop a treatment and it's gone. You've eradicated the illness and you don't have to do anything to take care of it anymore. It is gone from your body. So as long as somebody still has to stay on a diet um, as a treatment, I'm, I, I personally am reluctant to use the word cure. She was in full remission of her symptoms, certainly. And so when I tell that story, I usually kind of get up to that point. And most people are like, yeah, what the hell's going to happen to her? You know, six, she's going to have a relapse. Well, it's 13 years later now. Um, so Doris is now 83 or 84. Wow. And she has been symptom free for the last 13 years. She has remained off of all psychiatric medications. She no longer sees a psychiatrist. She doesn't see a therapist. Um, she actually got rid of the guardian. She can, she learned how to take care of her own affairs, pays her own bills, does her own grocery shopping, does everything she needs to do on her own. And, um, so his, has regained a lot of function. Um, and, uh, and, you know, when I spoke with Doris, if anything, she sounded a little bit on the hypomanic side. She was kind of like, <laughs> I'm so happy to be alive. This is the best thing in the world. This guy, oh my God, Dr. Westman saved my life. He is like an angel. And like, I, you know, this, uh, so she, um, she is very passionate about this treatment and gave me permission to use her real name in telling her story, encouraged me to tell her story far and wide, if I can, to anybody who will listen. Because she said, if my experience can help even one other person who is going through the living hell that I went through for 53 years, please tell them my story. Bravo, Eric Westman. Bravo, sir. And bravo to you, Chris, for having the balls to share this information because I know there's a few haters out there in the world, but the truth will set us free is what I firmly believe. And I will do everything in my power and, and in my mission to become the world's most influential motivational speaker. You know, the podcast is still relatively fresh and new, but it's gaining some serious momentum and it's giving me a really wonderful platform to put extraordinary people like you in the spotlight people must as a matter of urgency know about this information uh, to improve their own lives and we are incredibly blessed to have you on the show today Chris to share this extraordinary powerful uh, so helpful information and I can't thank you enough from the bottom of my heart how do people find you so the easiest way to find me is I, I do have a website chrispalmermd.com. So all one word, chrispalmermd.com. And, um, and on that site, I have a lot of information. I'm not selling anything. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not taking new patients. I'll just put that out there now. I'm, I'm like swamped. I'm turning people away right and left. I wish I wasn't, but I am. Um, so I, I'm not looking for anything other than to give people information. So I have a lot of information about this diet, about the research, about the science of why this diet might work. Um, and it's all free and available. And just for the people that are going, yeah, Laban, but what about the science? Well, firstly, I say fuck you. But like, secondly, there's 17 different research studies across Stanford, Harvard, Oxford, John Hopkins. Where else are we? Where else are you involved? 
yeah, no. So I'm I'm involved in your neck of the woods, uh, James Cook University. Uh, um, <laughs> yes, uh, um, Zoltan Sarnaya has been doing a lot of this research in animal models of schizophrenia, um, and uh, has really been helping to pave the way as well. And um, it's interesting because we've as you mentioned, all of those institutions here in the United States, the National Institute of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse is doing a multi-million dollar study of the ketogenic diet for alcoholism. Um, and uh, so the, the really good news is that <clears throat> we have a tremendous amount of science already published. And, um, and we, because we know so much about this because this is, a, this is an approved evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And we know that this diet profoundly affects brain function. And at the end of the day, we use epilepsy treatments in psychiatry every single day. We use them very commonly. So it is not a stretch at all to think about using an evidence-based dietary intervention for epilepsy for psychiatric disorders. It's just not a stretch at all. And it's really interesting because in the in the, in the five years that I've been publishing on this, a lot of other very prominent researchers in psychiatry have caught on. And, and there's a little bit of a battle even going on about whose idea was this? Who's, who's really the pioneer here? I, I want credit, I want credit. And you know, in my mind, I'm like all for it. I like, this, is not, this isn't my bread and butter career. This is kind of a side gig for me. So for me, it's kind of like, well, I just want to help people. And if this can help people, that's great. And when everybody starts competing over an idea, you know it's good. <laughs> Chris, is there anything that you'd like to finish on? I, 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 I keep talking. So <laughs> All I can say is, you know, mental illness is for, for any listeners, I'll, I'll go ahead and finish on this. For those of you who don't know, mental illness is now the leading cause of disability in the world. Um, more people are unable to go to work or go to school because of a mental illness. And the reality is mental illnesses torture people. Um, they torture people and the torture is from within. Um, they also shame and humiliate people. People lose so much social status, they lose relationships, they lose their careers, they lose so much because of a mental illness. And we need new ideas and new approaches for how to treat these people. Because our current treatments, although they work for some people, and I'm all for it, I'm not here to bash those treatments, um, they fail to work for far too many people. And um, we need new, fresh approaches that are science-based, that are evidence-based, and the ketogenic diet is one of them. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Chris Palmer. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training 
Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.